All right. Thank you so much for joining us for this inaugural installment of a, a Credo Livestream podcast. I'm joined by my good friend, Larry Chapp, who joins me on the podcast semi-regularly to discuss uh, all things Catholic theology. And he has uh, he's graciously agreed to, to be a guinea pig here on the first live stream that I've ever done for this podcast. So, Larry, how are you? And uh, welcome to Credo once again. Hey, I'm, I'm great. Other than uh, seasonal allergies, as we said off, off record, uh, I'm doing fantastic. Things are going well. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Well, I'm excited to uh, to dive into this Q and A. Uh, it looks like we've got one question already in the chat from a Zachary Nelson. So let's just dive right in. I've got a few uh, in the stockpile as well from other uh, other readers and viewers and listeners who have tuned in. So uh, we'll get to those if we have time. Uh, but right now, let's start off with this question from Zachary. He says, "Why does liking the Latin Mass and Nouvelle theology seem to be a conflict? Latin Mass communities tend to hate the Lubach." So what do you say to that, Larry? I say it's unfortunate because uh, there should be no conflict between the two things. What's interesting, I think, is uh, what's going on here is a clash of different kinds of traditionalisms. Uh, people who subscribe to Resourcement Theologie, which is the title I uh, we prefer, uh, the Resourcement Theologians, Nouvelle Theologie was kind of an insult in the day. Oh, that's the new theology. Uh, but, you know, we believe in returning to the deep sources of the tradition. Therefore, we're traditionalists. And therefore, we have no opposition whatsoever to the Latin Mass. I love the old Latin Mass. I'm a huge supporter of Sumorum Pontificorum by Benedict. I'm a huge supporter of the Latin Mass, uh, as are many resource mont types. Uh, you can't read Guardini's Spirit of the Liturgy or Ratzinger's book on the liturgy without coming away with an awareness of their deep appreciation for the traditional liturgy. Uh, most of the conflict, however, is coming from the other side, unfortunately. Not everyone. Most people in the TLM movement are very open to Orthodox theologians. But there's a vocal crowd of Internet, internet I think, rage-baiting, click-baiting types that have really fanned the flames of misunderstanding of uh, Nouvelle Theologie. It's all lumped together as just modern theology. Uh, modernist theology, and it really isn't. They need to understand De Lubach, Balthazar Ratzinger, deeply opposed modernism and truly opposed modernism. Uh, and the reason why many traditionalists don't like De Lubach is that they don't really, I think, understand completely what he is saying. It's become a kind of talking point in, in certain traditionalist circles. You're not supposed to like Balthazar because he says everybody goes to heaven, which he doesn't. Uh, you're not supposed to like De Lubach because he says God owes us grace. He doesn't. These are all very nuanced theologies that I think are greatly oversimplified by certain purveyors of the Latin Mass who have weaponized that Mass against uh, anything that's modern. And I think that's very, very unfortunate. I think it only hurts the cause of the traditionalist movement. Um, and I, I would add real quick, Larry, that, that 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 certainly is true that supporters of the TLM have, in some cases, weaponized it against uh, others like the Lubach and Balthazar. But I think it's also true the other way around, right? That oh, yeah. some of the more some of the more radical modernists have embraced the Lubach and Balthazar uh, and have weaponized them, uh, and they'd be turning over their graves if they if they knew it was happening. I mean, um, uh, but they've well, weaponized them against the traditionalists as well. I uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not completely aware of, of a, uh, maybe you can give me an example of a of, of, of real liberal type modernists who, who use Balthazar and De Lubach. Um, 
but I mean, that's, that's not, I'm not saying that that isn't out there. I'm sure there probably are some who like the Lubach's theology of grace. Right. Because they think it opens up a kind of Ronnerian view of things. I think Ronner is the bigger boogeyman here. People like Ronner, Skillebex, Hans Kung. Uh, I, I think they're the, the real villains in this narrative. If you want, if you want to villainize anybody, um, the fact of the matter is, is Balthazar Ratzinger and de Lubach were deeply, deeply opposed to modernism. But you talk about weaponization. In defense of the traditional Latin mass people, the knives are out for some, from some quarters now. I don't know if you're familiar with the Jesuit Father Tom Reese, who writes sometimes for America Magazine. I am, yes. Did you see the essay he came out with like a month ago now? No, I don't or, think I did. Yeah, I'll look it up he, now, though. Uh, he blasted the Latin Mass, essentially, by implication, blasted Pope Benedict for allowing the Latin Mass again, and said that the time must come where the church bans it again and just gets rid of it uh, because it's divisive, it's horrible, it, uh, you know, all the typical liberal sort of canards about the Latin Mass. Um, Is this so, his article, Vatican II Made Changes to the Liturgy, It's Time to Think About Making More? Yeah. He published that, uh, I kid you not, on Benedict the Sixteenth's birthday, too. I wonder if that was intentional, just yeah, <laughs> twisting the very well a bit. Have been. Could very well have been. I'll, uh, I'll drop the link to that in the, uh, in the chat box here if others are interested in it. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> okay, great. So uh, there's one question down. Uh, I've got another one. So uh, I think this, this is what I was going to start off with if we didn't have one already in the chat box queued up for us, Larry. But uh, this is one probably not the easiest to start with, but uh, now that we've got the juices flowing a little bit, this is a question on theodicy. And this was from a viewer who watched one of our recent discussions uh, in which you talked about your sister's congenital heart defect. And let right. me just read what David said uh, in a YouTube comment, and we can talk about it there. He says... Larry Chap talks a bit about theodicy. Specifically, he mentioned that he doesn't believe for a second that God willed his sister's congenital heart defect, from which she died at the age of five after surgery. He also talks about pedophiles, etc. I'm not so sure. Imagine a Green Beret standing in the same room watching a monster raping a child. Would we let the soldier off lightly by waving a hand and saying he only permitted the pedophile to do evil, but he certainly didn't will it? Actually, it is worse than that. The perpetrator and the victim aren't dependent on the Green Beret for continued existence, whereas God Almighty sustains all of us, good and bad, at every moment. Anyway, Dr. Chap is the theologian, not me, so I'll go back to watching the rest of the video. Now, we didn't, we didn't, you know, I'm glad that David watched the rest of the video, but we didn't explore this topic in depth in the video, Larry. So what would you say to this, this question, this theodicy problem from David? Well, there's a standard uh, theological answer, and then there's a more existential human answer, which I think right. the question is, is really kind of driving at. I mean, the, the standard theological answer, the textbook answer, is that we have to make a distinction between God's direct will and his permissive will. Mm-hmm. And God can never directly will evil. He simply cannot. It would be, God would cease to be God if he ever directly willed evil. He is infinite goodness and is incapable of doing that. Uh, therefore, evil does exist, which means that God allows it to exist. He permits it to exist in his permissive will because the, the allowance for the presence of evil is, is, is in some sense necessary in order to achieve what he does directly will. So, for example, he directly wills beings with free will. He directly wills that those beings with free will love him. That's why he creates beings with free will. He doesn't want, he could have easily made a bunch of robots that were programmed to automatically love him. Well, what's the point to that? He wanted right. to create free <laughs> beings that would freely love him. But in order to have free beings, 
that means you have to allow for the possibility that those free beings might choose evil. See what I mean? So he has to permit the possibility of the misuse of freedom in order to allow for what he directly wills, which is freedom as such. And then that opens up the door to a bunch of evils. So he permits it. And so, no, I don't think God directly willed that my sister was born with a heart defect or that somebody was getting raped or whatever. But God permits these things in order for both human beings and nature and, and so on to have a certain freedom. That, that kind of explains natural evils like heart defects and stuff. God gives nature a certain freedom as well. He's not micromanaging every aspect of the natural world because human freedom cannot be a little island oasis of freedom in an otherwise ocean of unfreedom. There has to be something latently free in the natural world as well. Uh, now that's kind of getting into deep waters. But the more existential gut punch that this great question is, is really, I think, kind of saying is that isn't there really, though, you can do all those distinctions, an ultimate sense in which we have to say the buck stops here. Mm -hmm. No matter what happens, God is the creator. God set this business up. So ultimately, God is kind of responsible for everything, isn't he? Uh, so God might not directly will my sister's heart defect, but insofar as he has allowed it and allowed for its possibility in his creation, he has willed it in some sense. When we say God's permissive will, that is a type of will. It's not as if God has done it against his will. Right. Uh, and so, it, it, so those sorts of evils have to be in some sense part of what God has included permissively. Uh, within the overarching plan. And that is kind of a gut punch for a lot of people. The problem of evil is probably the most vexing of all theological problems, and there's no answer to it. How does an all-powerful, all-loving God allow for such horrific evils to exist? Uh, and there is no easy answer to that question whatsoever. Scripture even grapples with it. It's, the, it's one of the central points of the book of Job. Jesus is presented, the, you know, with this question of the tower that fell on those people. Was that because they were sinners? And he says, no, no, that's that's not it. Uh, the cross eventually points us towards, though, something of an answer, which is at the very least, God does not exempt himself from the very sufferings and horrors of evil that he has allowed in his creation. Um, and so we, we can take some solace and some hope in the fact that Christ has solidarity with us in our sufferings, and that our sufferings are redemptive right? Uh, in, in, in vicarious ways. Yeah, just to add a few things to, to sure, those go really good comments. <clears throat> um, yeah, it, it's, it's like you said, I'm glad you added that last part about suffering, right? That the suffering can be redemptive, because the suffering of the cross doesn't only show us that even God, the incarnate God, is not exempted from suffering— but rather it shows us not just that, it shows us that the suffering can have meaning, the suffering can um, can be redemptive. God allows it so that good may result. Um, and then another thing that I would add that I think really important to have in this, to have sort of as a grounding in this theodicy discussion is the fact that sin is not anything in and of itself. It's no positive being, if you will. Sin right. is merely a privation of goodness. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, the privation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's absence of goodness where goodness should be. Um, and so that's, you know, metaphysically speaking, that's why God can't will evil because evil is not something that can be positively willed by him because it is an absence of good and he is pure goodness. Um, and I think that's important to understand because 
you know, the, the moral evil to me, the, the question of moral evil, right? Why do, why do people do bad things is pretty easily answered by the free will question. The, the natural evil question is, is I think a lot harder because we have to wrestle with the reality of bad things, right? Of evil things, of something not being the way it should, right? Like a, like a heart defect, for example, right? The, 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 yeah. the perfect functioning the perfect functioning of the heart is absent in a heart defect and so that is the presence of natural evil there and there is no there's no exercise of will in nature properly considered right the, the 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 world does not have its own will to sort of determine when to inflict natural evils and when not to inflict natural evils upon upon its inhabitants uh, but there is a very real sense I think in which we can we can think of sort of the um the ontological or the metaphysical reality of sin as as sort of warping the whole plan. And so sin introduced into the world through moral evils, through evils that we choose to do, actually corrupts the natural order of goodness that God created and intended. Anything to add to that, Larry? That also disrupts our relationship with that natural order. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, some mystics and church fathers and even Jewish sages in the past have, uh, you know, written that, you know, before Adam fell, in you know whether you take that literally or symbolically or whatever, I don't I don't want to get into that. But in, in the non-fallen human condition, we may have had sort of preternatural or what we maybe paranormal powers mm-hmm. over our own bodily functions. Even some church fathers talk about we could even control our own digestion and so forth, and we would have had an ability to be very prescient about looming dangers in the natural. Here come a sense of here comes a tsunami, here comes an earthquake, here comes a tornado, uh, or and even an ability for your mind to help you cure diseases of the body. Uh, as we know that the mind can have a great power over even diseases of, of the body. And in a non-sinful state, our, our ability to control even physiological and natural uh, functions may have been much, much, much greater. Uh, than, than what it is now. So we experience nature in a disjointed way where maybe we didn't before. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. But you're, you're right, too, that this is, I've called it before, the most difficult problem known to man, right? The question of evil. Why, why does evil exist? So um, we obviously can only scratch the surface here, Larry. So any, any readings that you've found to be particularly helpful in helping you unpack this that you'd recommend to our viewers? Oh, yeah, there's a great little book by the Eastern Orthodox theologian David Bentley Hart, who's a very famous you know, theological writer, a good theologian. Uh, and he right, Remember that tsunami in Indonesia, what was it, 15 years ago now? Yes. Uh, after the nine-point-something earthquake near Indonesia, and then the tsunami killed like 200,000, 300,000 people. Yeah, he wrote a book called "The Doors to the Sea." I think that's what it was called. That it's not a very long book, and it's actually written on a popular level. And it's his meditation on why did God allow two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand people to die miserably in, in the tsunami? Uh, and, it, and he doesn't answer neat little, you know, bromides, neat little answers. Oh, here's the answer. No. But it is a profound theological meditation that I think might help people. That's a great recommendation. I've not read it yet, but I am. Uh, I'm taking a note here. Great and, little book. Uh, I'm on. I'm on a big anti-Amazon kick lately, Larry. I did a yeah. recent episode with an author named Alec McGillis who has written his own book about the evil empire, uh, Amazon. So I'm going to link right here in the chat to a uh, a bookshop.org link where you can find 
uh, this book by David Bentley Hart uh, at an independent bookseller uh, and avoid uh, avoid Excellent. doing business. Whenever I can entire. buy a book straight from the seller or the publisher, I do, and I, I bypass Amazon. Exactly. Yeah, I'm I'm doing that now as well. I've I wish we could my... bypass Google. I know, I know, me too. Uh, but I've canceled my Amazon Prime subscription and everything, so I'm trying to I'm trying to disentangle myself. Uh, it's it's difficult to do though. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so I've, I see we've got a few concurrent viewers here. Uh, if you have a question for uh, Larry or myself, feel free to drop it in the chat. I've got a few more, and we'll just stay on the on the topic of uh, David Bentley Hart here, Larry. Um, sure. I know you wrote a recent blog post on the idea of massa damnata, uh, right? A, a, a mass damnation of many souls to hell. Um, contraposed uh, with the idea uh, of Balthazar, perhaps, right? That, you know, can we hope that, that many, or can we hope that all shall be saved? Dare we hope it was is the title of his book. Um, Mistitled, think, by the way. What's that? Mistranslated, the title. Oh, really? Okay, so what's the correct translation? Yeah, uh, the, the actual title of the book in German is uh, Was dürfen wir hoffen? And it doesn't mean dare we hope that all, it, it's what are we allowed to hope for is okay. what the, book, the title should be. What are we allowed to hope for? Um, but that would sell less books over here, though, Larry. If, well, if yeah. <laughs> so in other words, dare we hope make it sounds like he's making this bold, adventurous, pushing the envelope yeah. proposal. Let's yeah. dare something. Let's challenge something. Where, in fact, the title is very humble and obedient to the magisterium of the church. What are we allowed to hope for within the boundaries of Revelation and ecclesial orthodoxy. That's what the title means. And, and the meditation flows from that. And of course, he reaches some rather famous uh, conclusions that we can hope that God will eventually save everyone. We can hope for that. Not only can we, but we should. We mm -hmm. must. The church actually commands us to pray. There are various liturgical prayers in the Liturgy of the Hours, in the Mass, that enjoin us to pray for the salvation of all. Right. of everyone. St. Paul says God wills the salvation of all. Right. So what all Balthazar is saying is, should we not hope for what it is that God wills? Of course we do. But now you've got, yeah. and this is kind of what the blog post is about, uh, and I'm going to write a follow-up blog post on this whole topic soon as well, because it really kicked up a firestorm and people are still so ignorant and misunderstanding. But the opposition comes forward and says, yeah, you can hope uh, that all are saved, but it's a dumb hope because Jesus assures us there's people in hell. We know this because Jesus told us there's people in hell. Well, Jesus did not tell us that. He warned us mm -hmm. that many are in danger of hell. And, and, and Balthazar, gave, Balthazar does a pretty good job. scenarios of judgment where people are going to be divided right. into the sheep and the goats, yeah. are going to be sent to hell if God judges them thusly. But as Balthazar points out, those verses of Jesus, it's not clear whether he's being predictive. This will happen yeah. for sure. I'm giving you an eschatological census here. I'm telling you there's going to be lots of people in hell, and most people are damned. Right. You could go that route, or you can go the route of saying these are admonitory verses. Jesus is saying conditionally this is what might happen if people don't change their ways. He is saying you are all under judgment. And this is the path that you are on, and this is the end point of that path. But then you get these other more universalist statements in the New Testament from St. Paul in the Gospel of John, where Paul says over and over, God wills the salvation of all. God is going to reconcile all. God 
put everyone in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. As in Adam all died, in Christ all lived. And in John's gospel, you have Jesus saying, I will draw all, when I am lifted up, I will yeah. draw all men to myself. Now, these are all, lean, uh, David Hart, David Hart has another great book. I think it's called That All Shall Be Saved. Or that all yeah, that's are. where I was going with my question, actually. Yeah. Now, I have issues with David Hart because David Hart is a full-on universalist. Right. Universalism is the belief we can know from Revelation with certainty that God saves everyone. And the church has condemned that view. It is a heretical view because it actually claims a knowledge that we do not have that is not in Revelation. You have to take Christ's warnings about hell seriously. Seriously, yeah. And you have to take the possibility of eternal damnation with a great gravity and seriousness. Jesus was not fooling around. Hell is real, and it's very possible people go there. I might go there. And you have to, you have to remember that. And so David Hart is wrong. But nevertheless, his book is excellent. I would recommend that anybody read it. His articles are powerful. His arguments are powerful, despite the fact that he is, in a sense, from a Catholic, he's Eastern Orthodox, in a Catholic perspective, he, it's, it's a heretical point of view. Balthazar's point against Hart's universalism, but also against the Massa Damnata crowd that says, we know for certain there's people in hell because Jesus told us so. Right. Balthazar says, no, 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 no. We don't know who's in hell. We don't know how many are in hell. That is not given for us to know whether all are saved, none are saved, many are saved, a few are saved. We just don't know. The point to the New Testament is not to provide us with predictive knowledge, as I call the eschatological senses of percentages and numbers and wide path. Narrow. When Jesus said, wide is the path that leads to perdition and narrow is the path that leads to salvation, of course it's narrow. He's the path. Christ is the path. And what, so what I would say to those critics of Balthazar who say we, we are enjoined to at least hope for the salvation of all, no, we know. I, I would say I would say to them, uh, you are pitting justice against mercy. You are also claiming to know things that Revelation doesn't doesn't teach. The church does not teach that we have to hold that anybody is in fact in hell. Um, and I, I I think they also misunderstand that wide path, narrow path uh, verse very much. Notice Jesus doesn't say, and this is exactly what's going to happen. I'm telling you, most people are going to be damned. He didn't say that. He didn't say, amen, amen, verily, verily, I say unto you, most people are going to hell. He did not say that. He did not teach that. Yeah. What he taught, I think, and this is where we need an element of humility. When, it, when he says, wide is the path, yeah, it's real wide, and we're all on it. We're all on the path to perdition. God needs to show mercy on all of us. Narrow is the path to salvation. Yeah, Christ is that path. And there are very few of us that are on it, maybe other than the saints. Did Jesus not say, will the Son of Man find faith on the world when he returns? Uh, there, there's a very, there's this paradox in the Gospels, in other words, where at one and the same time, for example, Jesus says, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he enjoins us to this rigorous Christian vocation but then turns around and says, mercy, 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 compassion, 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 forgiveness, forgive, go out, serve the poor, prodigal son, endless forgiveness, all these sorts of things. And that's because in the regime of holiness, you need forgiveness. 
in, in, in a regime where holiness is called for, all the more mercy is called for. So in a regime, too, where the, where the threat of hell looms ever before us, judging all of us, mercy abounds all the more as well. And mercy has to be the first word, because that's why Christ died on the cross. He didn't die on the cross to dangle the sword of Damocles over our head every single day of our existence. I'm reading a little book right now called by Balthazar called The Christian in Anxiety. I'm doing a podcast on Friday with Chris McGregor about I've it. I've heard about this one. I haven't read it. It's great. And he, and, and he says, essentially, we, we, Balthazar says, of course, we have to concern ourselves with the possibility of hell. Hmm. Um, but it's not something that should create within us some sort of Jansenist guilt and, and right. rigorism and this constant fixation on eternal damnation and so on. And by the way, to get back to Hart, and then I'll shut up so we can maybe get to a different question. Just to clarify, I mean, David Hart believes in hell, and he believes there are people in hell, and he believes that maybe even most of us will go to hell. This is David Hart, the universalist. He just doesn't believe that hell is eternal. Right. He thinks that the pains and sufferings and punishments of hell are purgative and remedial, and that after God puts Humpty Dumpty back together again, then we proceed on to heaven. It's the eternity of hell that David Hart objects to. And, uh, you know, that, that to me is the interesting part. I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't agree with it because I'm a Catholic. Right. You know, so that's the title of Father Was Dürfen wir Hüffen. In the light of all of these speculations, it's a legitimate question to ask. What are we allowed to hope for? Do we have to hope that some people are in hell? No, we don't. It's as simple as that. Yeah, that's a point. I wonder, as a Balthazar scholar, how much of your time talking about Balthazar has been defending him from claims that he was a universalist. I think that's the one thing I knew about Balthazar, or I thought I knew about Balthazar before I actually read Dare We Hope, I think it was two summers ago. And I did yeah. a podcast on this feed with uh, with a guy named Father Harrison Ayer, who who uh, oh, I know also Father Harrison. yeah okay great so Father Harrison came on and we talked about the book and exactly what Balthazar is saying and exactly what he's not saying and he is really careful uh, to keep his argument circumscribed to Very say so. look I'm a son of the Church and of the Magisterium this is what the Church has said but let's also be frank and look carefully at at these passages that have been you know ma- not magisterially defined but have been you know, interpreted by various exegetes in ways that could be wrong. And, and this is what they could be saying about what we can hope for. Yeah, because if you're going to take those, and I'll get back to, uh, you know, how I spend my time defending Balthazar these days. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to take all of these statements from Jesus about hell as not simply admonitory or, in a sense, as a kind of caution, but as utterly and completely predictive, in a definitive, that Jesus is giving us knowledge, real knowledge, of what's going to happen, then you are necessarily wedded, which St. Augustine proves, you are wedded to the notion that most people are going to be damned. You have to be wedded to the notion. If you take Jesus' words literally, as a literal prediction, it's very clear that the trajectory of those words in a literal direction is that the vast, vast, vast majority of human beings who have ever lived are going to suffer eternal torment. Now let, the, mm-hmm. let that sink in. Yeah. Not, not temporary punishments. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever ad infinitum. Right. All right. 
into the future. Of course, eternity has no time, but you get my point. Um, sufferings, pains, which means that um, they have to be self-imposed. God would not impose those kinds of eternal sufferings. The, the sinner has to sort of re reject, reject God for all eternity. And is that truly possible? Uh, I think it is. David Hart says it isn't. But anyway, uh, yeah, I'm in the early part of my theological career, the fact of the matter is Balthazar was considered an extreme conservative, a reactionary, uh, a, a dangerous opponent of modern theology. You have to understand, when I was at Fordham University, 1989 through 94, getting my doctorate, and I did my doctorate on Balthazar, I had to fight tooth and nails to get this dissertation first approved as a topic and then uh, run through and approve really? the dissertation. Wow. Even even though, I mean, it, it was, a, if I may say so myself, it was a damn good dissertation. And there were very, very, very few American theologian student graduates doing dissertations on Balthazar. So it was turned into a book and sold. And and the, the fact is, the reason why the Jesuits opposed Balthazar was because Balthazar opposed the ordination of women. Balthazar thought mandatory celibacy for priests was, was a good thing. Balthazar was opposed to divorce and remarriage. Balthazar supported Humani Vitae's teaching on artificial contraception. Balthazar supported the papacy and the notion of the Bishop of Rome as the supreme shepherd of the church. Balthazar subscribed to very orthodox traditional views of Christology, Trinitarian theology, morality, ecclesiology, Mariology. You get my point. He was thoroughly orthodox and was hated for it. This is why Joe Fessio, the Jesuit who started Ignatius Press and was publishing Balthazar, why he became a pariah among the Jesuits, mm -hmm. because they hated Balthazar so much for being anti-modern, for being orthodox and traditional. And so I spent almost all of my theological career in the early years defending Balthazar against this charge of being a reactionary right-wing nutjob when, when he wasn't. I mean, orthodox, yes, but reactionary, no. So it came as a great shock to me. Since I'm a traditionalist, and I've always seen Balthazar as a natural ally, same with Ratzinger, De Luba, sure. John yeah. Paul, Benedict. And you, know, and you notice that some of these traditionalists that are now going after Balthazar, tooth and nails, are also now beginning to go after John Paul going after Benedict, going after de Lubach, you know, all of them. Uh, and, and of course, Vatican II, which, which is, according to the followers of Archbishop Vigano and so forth, is a heretical council. Uh, so Balthazar is seen, I think, as simply the poster boy, as is Bishop Robert Barron, all right, the poster boy of a kind of Catholicism that these people reject. And so now, none of them have read Balthazar. Well, not you know, at my point, some of them have, but most most of the of the traditionalists I run across on Facebook and other social media, or through my blog, it's clear they haven't read a word of Balthazar. Yeah. All they know about him, they don't know anything about his Christology, Trinitarian theology, Ecclesi. The only thing they know is what they've been told by people like Mike Boris and Taylor Marshall. Oh, he was a universalist, and he wasn't. <laughs> No, I mean he's he's very careful in his own book to defend himself from that charge. So it's absolutely shocking too the the level of calumny, yeah. sinful detraction of his character that these people are willing to stoop to. 
even a theologian who I greatly admire, Ralph Martin. I've admired Ralph Martin for decades and his, his various books and renewal ministries, and some of your viewers might be uh, familiar with him. But in his last book, The Church in Crisis, this is my last blog post is about, I mean, he, he says, he, he has a chapter, chapter eight in that book, which is devoted to Satanism and satanic deceptions in the modern church. And in that chapter, he discusses Planned Parenthood, the, the gay agenda, uh, abortion, uh, the Nazis, eugenicists, technocratic elites, and Balthazar. Balthazar is in league with Satan. He and that mystic, Adrian von Speyer, are in league Yikes. with Satan. Yeah. Satan, 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 Satan. And then he imputes all of these weird, uh, this was a weird relationship Balthazar had with von Speyer. There's something ooey-gooey, creepy about this. Without ever specifying, well, yeah, he moved, Balthazar moved in with her and her husband. Better to catalog her charisms and so on and so forth. Right. But beyond that, Doctor Martin, what are you, what are you insinuating here? Right. Uh, he also clearly thinks Adrian is just a fake mystic, even though he gives no evidence of that. None, uh, other than well, she talked to Saint Ignatius. Well, Ralph Martin is a charismatic. He gets a word of knowledge every day while crunching on his granola. I mean, this is a movement where people are constantly getting words of knowledge, prophecies. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, Speaking yeah. in angelic languages and so forth. It takes a lot of chutzpah for a guy that spent decades in that movement to turn around and say, well, this mystic is questionable because she claims to have words of knowledge from a saint. Are you kidding me? What colossal hypocrisy. And the only reason he does this, the only reason is because he cannot stand their teaching on hell. Yeah. He thinks they're universalists. He's wrong about that. He couldn't be more wrong about that. Well, before we close this out, I've got I've got two more chats oh, uh, sure. in in the chat window. Larry, uh, Brendan says universalism is heretical, like eating meat is a mortal sin. It's merely pastoral. Change my mind. And then Jared says uh, Matthew twenty five verse thirty one, quote When the son son of man comes in his glory, and he says, I understand what you're saying, Doctor Chap, but that sounds predictive. Um, and and we we can tackle each of those in turn. But let me just read the broader context of Matthew twenty five thirty one. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So maybe maybe we'll take those sort of in reverse order. So first, Jared's comment about how that sounds pretty predictive as opposed to uh, admonitory. And then Brendan's, Brendan's assertion that universalism is not actually a heresy. Well, we'll start with the first one, yeah. Well, it does sound predictive, and that's not the only one. There are quite a few that do sound predictive. And Balthazar is quite upfront about that in, in, in you know, in Was dürfen wir hoffen, what may we hope for. Uh, he's very upfront. In, in some ways, Balthazar actually doesn't say that these verses are merely admonitory. In, in many cases, he'll say, yeah, they sound predictive. Mm -hmm. what, what, what Balthazar's point is, is that there are two strands of, of theological teaching in the New Testament that exist in a kind of unresolved tension. The one strand is definitely a strand that seems to imply that there are going to be lots and lots of people in hell. The other strand is the more universalist strand of, you know, I'm going to reconcile everyone to myself. When I'm lifted up, I will lift all people to myself, where St. Paul says, at the end of time, Christ will present creation to the Father, and he will be all in all. 
and God wills the salvation of all. And, and not without reason did some of the church fathers, excellent church fathers, church fathers who are saints, saints, like St. Irenaeus, teach the doctrine of apocatastasis, the right. restoration of all things in Christ. <laughs> yeah. Why did they teach that? Because it's in Scripture, that's why. All right, and so why are we fixating, fixating, fixating only on these verses that sound predictive of people in hell and not also paying attention to the universalist sort of statements as well as many, you know, many church fathers were universalists, all right? Irenaeus, uh, he was apocatastic, was slightly different, but okay, he had leanings towards that. Uh, certainly Origen mm -hmm. and uh, Gregory of Nyssa and uh, Jerome before his confrontation with Rufinus, uh, Maximus the Confessor to an extent, most of the Cappadocians. Uh, so this is, it's not as if, as some of the traditionalists say, there's this massive consensus of the Church Fathers that it, most people are going to hell. No, it's, it's not so fast. And this was what's good about David Hart's book as well. He points, he points this out clearly. Uh, Augustine sort of changes things, because Augustine comes along and says, no, this is all predictive. But to get back to the question, I mean, Balthazar well, will acknowledge they sound predictive. But I could also quote you verses that sound as if God's going to reconcile everybody. <laughs> right. What sound predictive in the other Balthazar direction, says, yeah. Balthazar says the ones that sound predictive are there in order to, in a sense, make sure that we understand that in this existence we do live under judgment. The stakes are high. The stakes are high and we live under judgment. And that is more than simply saying, oh, these are just admonitory. No. That's kind of dismissive. Balthazar is saying, there's a very real chance we could go to hell. He's not saying the predictive ones are outweighed by the universalist ones. He's saying they're both there. Right. And therefore, both sides that claim to know for a fact one way or the other, all are saved, only a few are saved, completely do not they're trying to resolve a tension that is in Scripture itself. And God left that tension there for a reason. And, and the reason is we are not given to know whether or not it's going to be 10 million people in hell or two people in hell. That's not for us to know. I know that's not a completely adequate answer, and it's a, and it's a darn good question. I would only encourage the reader to read Dare We Hope and, and, yeah. uh, and, and make up their own mind. Maybe they already have. Well, I would echo that encouragement because when I read Dare We Hope, I was really surprised by what it was saying and what it was not saying. And yeah. I haven't read much else of Balthazar, so you could confirm for me if this is in fact the case. But I was really impressed by how much of the work Dare We Hope was really focused on um, really the, the individual spiritual life and, and Christian charity and thinking through what it means to exercise Christian charity. Because for me, the, the linchpin of the argument came down to this simple simple formulation that Christian charity actually impels us to hope for the salvation of each person, right? So so think of yeah. the worst person in all of history, right? Emperor Nero. I think Christian charity impels us to hope that he, in fact, encounters the mercy of God. And if that's the case, then Christian charity also impels us to actually hope for the salvation of everyone, that everyone encounters that mercy. It's not as if, you know, it's not as if Christian charity permits us to somehow hope that only one of, you know, Hitler, Stalin, yeah. uh, and Nero get to heaven, but rather that, that they all do, right? And so uh, so the assertion is not that everyone does, but the assertion is that we are allowed to hope that everyone does, because that's what Christian charity calls forth. Um, and uh, and I was compelled by Balthazar's citations of various saints. I think Teresa of Avila and Edith Stein are two of the, the biggest names Edith that he Stein. talks about. 
who say exactly that, right? That that they, I think it was Teresa of Avila, uh, I think it was her, um, who said that basically if she could, uh, if she could, you know, go to hell for the sake of all of the rest of mankind, she gladly would. Um, yeah. And that was such a powerful and profound statement for me because I think it's often our Christian impulse to instead wish that those who are doing bad things get what's coming to them. And that we who are, you know, quote, not doing bad things uh, can go to heaven. Yeah, it's, uh, and, it's, and that yeah. that's a dangerous impulse. It's, it's a sort of regime of retributive justice that then gets transferred into Christian soteriology just to court and without any translation into a higher theological register that's deeply problematic. In many ways, if you look, read the Sermon on the Mount and so forth, Jesus is essentially saying, justice is not your first word. Mercy, forgiveness, compassion, vicarious right. suffering, those are your first words. You know, and, and according to strict justice, I, you know, I have a right to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus says, yeah, 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 that's all good. But why are you making justice your first kid? You need to pray for your enemies. You need to go beyond the realm of mere justice. And if he is saying that about us, in some sense, how wrong is it for us to pit God's justice against God's mercy as if right. they are two sort of oppositional principles as well. Yeah, but by all means, read Dare We Hope, because I, I just want to say this to those who are, who are listening. I have no animus against, if you've read my blog as well, I have no animus against Ralph Martin uh, or, or, or other traditionalists. Ralph Martin's not a traditionalist, he's a charismatic, but or the other traditionalists who are now suddenly heaping coals of hatred, really vitriolic, hateful calumnies directed at Balthazar because they disagree with his views on hell. Most of them uh, most of them have never read him. At least Ralph Martin's bothered to read right. Balthazar, and, and extensively. Um, and so I, I give him that. I would just say, put away your sword. Balthazar is your ally, not your enemy. You are free to disagree with him on this point, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because he is a powerful, powerful resource for the faith in the modern world, which is why John Paul made him a cardinal. My goodness, not even the great Thomas Aquinas got everything right. Yeah, it's true. He got several things wrong, actually. Yeah. Uh, but like God, I'm not going to throw Aquinas into the bonfire of you know of modernist thinkers and so on. Yeah. I I I, I I'm I'm willing to hold in abeyance where I think he's wrong because right. 98 percent of the time he's right and yeah. beautiful and all the and I'm just saying it's a complex issue this issue of salvation. And nobody's dotted every I or crossed every T. It's an open debate. Can we be charitable here, please? That, that, that was really what my last blog post was mostly about. I wasn't arguing in favor of universalism against right. universalism. I was saying, is this really a reason why we should start hating our brothers and our sisters in the, yeah. in, in the Catholic world? Oh, you like Balthazar. You're a modernist. <laughs> you're, you're, right. a, you're, you're a heretic. Well, what, really? No, this, this is not good. Likewise, we need to, I think, have a greater appreciation and understanding of why it is so many traditionalists are so angry right now. Well, we've got a question from Zachary that I want to get to, but real quick, uh, Brendan just chimed in again, just as we wrap up this uh, this universalism topic. And sure. he says, oh. if it is heresy, universalism, that is, and Balthazar's hope is fulfilled, the church would have called truth heresy. Uh, I'm curious to hear your your quick response to that, but I would I would briefly say, uh, as you already pointed out, Larry, universalism is the is the uh, theological position that we can have certainty about the salvation of of uh, yeah. all. Uh, whereas the hope of Balthazar being fulfilled is not the same thing as holding right now a certainty, because to hold that certainty is to uh, possess for ourselves or to claim to possess for ourselves a certainty that belongs only to God. 
um, to put ourselves in the judgment seat of God rather than in our own seats where we're supposed to be. Um, so that's what I would say to uh, to Brendan's assertion that universalism is not a heresy, but uh, any other things to add to that, Larry? Yeah, uh, I think it's a really, really good question. There's a Father Al Kimmel who has a blog post. He's an Eastern Orthodox priest. I can't mm -hmm. think of the name of the blog right now. It's an Eclectic Orthodoxy. Father Al Kimmel, K-I-M-E-L. Yeah, uh, Eclectic Orthodoxy is, is the name of the blog, I think. He, what's, that, what's it called? Eclectic Orthodoxy. Eclectic Orthodoxy. It's a wonderful blog. And in there, he has several articles where he, and essays, blog posts, where he talks about how universalism is not a heresy. I think it is. I, I haven't yet been able to square that circle with the Catholic dogmatic tradition, uh, nor do, am I certain that I necessarily want to. Um, but uh, it's certainly interesting. And so Brendan's question is interesting. I, th I think, I think the, the verdict is still out on, on, on some of these questions. Can, can you hang on one second? Can you, yeah, can absolutely. I pause a second? There's yeah. somebody at my door, believe okay, it or not. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, I'll be right yeah, well, back. I will, uh, while Larry is uh, attending to that, I will say I just posted um, Father Kimmel's blog in the chat window. So if you want to check that out, again, it's called Eclectic Orthodoxy. And he does have a lot of good discussions um, on here about a lot of topics, but one of them is universalism. So if you just go to the search bar, I'm doing it right now. If you go to the search bar and just search universalism, you will find a lot of things that he's written about that, including, for example, whether or not the question of whether or not the Fifth Ecumenical Council actually condemned um, both origin and the broader idea of universalism. His answer, I think, to the first is possibly, and his answer to the second is no. All right, well, yeah, so we'll look to wrap this up here in a few minutes. And Zachary says, um, Crisis published this article about how the debates around Vatican II needed to stop, and we need to move on and recognize that Vatican II's solutions to modernity are not helpful. And he wants, uh, wants our thoughts on that. So what would you say? I don't know if you've read the article in Crisis. No, um, I read the uh, thesis. Did he, is he the one who wrote the article critical of Bishop Barron too, or is that somebody else? Yes, that was him. Yeah. yeah the, at least I, I think it was. Let me, I'll double check, but I think that was him. Yeah. Uh, not a fan, not a fan at all. So I, I no, I have not read his article on Vatican two. I think he, uh, you can go back there. I, several blog posts that I, I wrote on Vatican two. Uh, yeah. Vatican two is not without its issues. No, not at all. Some of it's, uh, it, it was a little too optimistic about modern culture and a little bit too naive about some of the strengths that it thought the church had at the time. The church was not as strong internally as the Council Fathers thought it was, and the culture was far more toxic to the faith than the Council Fathers thought that it was. Uh, and, and there are, therefore, pastoral statements in the council that I think should be set aside. I agree with Eric. Yeah, they're, they're not helpful anymore. After all, I mean, these are schema and theological documents that were written around 1960, 62. Uh, how long ago was that? I was born in 1958. I'm 62 years old. So you, it, it, how much has the world changed? What, what a completely different universe that we are in right now. So I, I'm not so into the council's reading of the signs of the times, which Ironically, I think we're flawed. I am more, hence the title of my blog post, Gaudium et Spes 22, paragraph right. 22, is where it emphasizes a Christocentric theological anthropology. It's all this about the incarnation. Is, uh, yes, I think the incarnational Christocentric uh, theology of uh, Gaudium et Spes, Lumen Gentium, Dei Verbum, are, are extremely, extremely valuable. They are definite steps forward. 
And I think that's going to be the lasting legacy of this council. So much of the council was non-dogmatic. It was pastoral. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, it's conditional. You know, yeah, I mean, it's Eric Sammons and others. I have no problem if they say, hey, look, I didn't like this. You know, fine, you know. Uh, but there are theological elements to the council, even in some of the dogmatic statements, that I think are rich and profound. And I think that'll be the council's lasting legacy. Uh, and I don't, therefore, want to chip away at its authority, uh, which these guys are actually, I think they have a hidden agenda, and it's not so hidden, actually. Let's chip, let's, let's first call the whole council pastoral so right. we can dismiss it. After all, did the council itself not say that it's simply a pastoral council, it's not going to right. further any new dogmas? Well, it didn't. They issued no anathemas. Yeah, it didn't issue any anathemas, and it did not further any new dogmas, but it put old dogmas in a new light theologically Mm -hmm. they in a sense developed certain dogmatic formulations without creating any new dogmas and those developments such as on religious freedom and so forth are very very important and the christocentric anthropology is very important what it says about revelation is very important but these guys hate it uh because like in you know you, you get these statements about you can find truth in other religions and so on, and then they really hate all that stuff. They think it's from a they they say Vatican II is not heretical, but it's sort of wink wink nudge nudge. We know that it's really promoting religious indifferentism, and then you get nut jobs like Archbishop Vigano who claim it's all a Freemason plot, <laughs> uh, which which is just beyond the pale. You know, I don't know what happened to him. Well, I I do think that there. There's, um, I mean, I, I guess I'd be curious on your historical historical perspective, um, having studied church history and looked at, at other post-conciliar periods, it, it, are we living through something unique in which uh, theological uh, commentators on both sides, on the sort of modernist side and the traditionalist side, are claiming words for their own or um, arguing over the legitimacy of the council? Or is this something that's just sort of the natural sorting out period of the 50 to 100 years following a council? Do you have a, an opinion on that? A little from column A and a little from column B. Uh, history repeats itself, but never exactly. Sure. And so uh, every council generates its own idiosyncratic problems. Nevertheless, the generic thing that ties them all together is, I mean, just ask uh, St. Athanasius whether or not the Council of Nicaea settled all matters whether yeah. or not there was still a lot of dust flying up in the air. I mean, this is a man, Athanasius, who, you know, was exiled and exiled and exiled by various Arian <clears throat> emperors, and many bishops remained Arian after the Arian controversy and so on. And and so much dust did Nicaea kick up that it required three or four or five further ecumenical councils to figure out what in the heck Nicaea meant when it said Jesus was of one substance with the Father. Right. And Ephesus has to come along and, you know, Constantinople first has to come along and say, well, Jesus was truly human as well as, you know, one with the father. And then, of course, Ephesus came along and said, and that humanity and that divinity are not mingled improperly or completely separate. It's a mysterious sort of thing. And of course, then Chalcedon has to tie it all together. Uh, and, and that took centuries for, for that for that to fall out and for the and, and still in some ways we're still dealing with the aftermath. I mean we still have non-Chalcedonian churches, the Coptic church for example. Right, right. Yeah. So non-Chalcedonian church. Whole parts aren't of the the, uh, the Oriental Orthodox all of them are non-Chalcedonian, aren't yeah. they? So should we be upset and surprised that after the Second Vatican Council uh, 
there was a great dust up, a great brouhaha, especially when you combine the conciliar project with the then this is what now is unique about the modern situation. Mm-hmm. The church has never confronted a culture as toxic to its message yeah. as modern culture. Yeah. And therein lies the problem. And therein lies a certain insight that the traditionalists, I think, do have. There was a certain naivete on the part of the conciliar fathers with regard to the dangers presented to us by the modern liberal world. And my only problem is I, I think the traditionalists get it somewhat to mostly wrong as to what the antidote to that is. Mm-hmm. They think it's to simply roll the clock back, return the forbidden index of books, and return the Massa Damnata, and return the Latin Mass, and return, you know, return, return, return. And I, I don't know. I could be wrong. I'm willing to listen. But I, I think the horses have run out of that barn a long time ago. And the fact that the church's culture collapsed almost overnight right. after the council tells you that it wasn't so healthy before the council either. And there are yeah. lots and lots and lots of evidence of that from people like George Bernanos and Guardini and, and even Ratzinger himself in his famous essay in 1958 where he talked about the new paganism in the church. There were lots of people who understood that there was a deep rot within the church even in that period of time and true. All was not well. So the idea that we just need to roll the clock back to 1930 or 20 or 05 or what, this is, this is, you can't do that for starters. The modern world is the modern world and you have to deal with it and you have to cope with it. But they do have a point that at least we do have to cope with it. We can't go down this accommodationist path of the Tom Reese's and the James Martins. That's a, or, or what the German synodal way wants to do. That's a recipe for ecclesial death. Give me the Latin mass crowd any day over over those people. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. Um, and and I, I like your point, and we've talked about it on the podcast before, right? But that the church did collapse overnight, and that's a sign that the pre-conciliar church was not as healthy as no. many want to think it was. I think we often think, oh yeah, prior to Vatican II, none of these doctrinal issues were around, et cetera. But, you know, in the 1970s, for example, when seminaries were churning out priests who would go on to just be horrible— uh, those priests who were teaching them were priests who had grown up in the preconciliar era and were shaped by the preconciliar, uh, the preconciliar ideas. So, um, Vatican II, I think, often ends up being the sort of the scapegoat, the easy thing to point to and say this is where it all went bad. Uh, but that's certainly not not the case. I, and I will yeah. say, in in closing, I think one thing that I take comfort in, you know, we have all this infighting, all this Catholic infighting between the the pro Vatican II and the anti Vatican II crowd, et cetera. But to your points about the ecumenical council debates that, that always followed an ecumenical council, the Holy Spirit was working in and among those debates, yeah. even despite the best efforts of the people who were having the squabbles. And so I take comfort in the fact that the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding his church, despite our best efforts to run it into the ground. I agree. Amen to that. And we need to be charitable towards each other. Absolutely. Yeah, I debate. completely agree. Um, well, we'll end it there, Larry. We're at just about one hour. Um, thank you to everyone who tuned in for this discussion, especially those who were asking questions. Um, let, let me know in the chat window how the how the resolution came through on the live stream. This is the first time I've used this software, the first time I've done a live stream on this channel. So let me know if this was, uh, was up to par. If not, I can look into some other technology for doing this the next time. But um, Larry, if you're up for it, we'd love to do this again with you sometime oh, soon. Absolutely. Yeah, I loved it. It's fun. Great. Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for joining us, everyone. Uh, If you have more questions for me or for Larry, you can send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalpodcast.com. 
and if you have not listened to my podcast before, go ahead and uh, find it wherever you get your podcasts. It's just Creedal, C-R-E-E-D-A-L. Uh, and uh, we talk about all things theology and culture through an authentically Catholic lens. So look me up, send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at credopodcast.com. And before I go go off, uh, I just saw a note from today's Martyrs Editor. Please uh, upvote this, uh, help me with the algorithms on YouTube, and subscribe to the channel if you're not subscribed already. So thank you so much, uh, and until next time, God bless you. Thank you.